0: I agree that uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit is just palpable in certain days and more powerful ways. Thank you for the music this morning. I, uh, I had the opportunity to listen to your sermons the last couple of weeks, Pastor Tim. Uh, Brenda and I, uh, two weeks ago, we were in, uh, in Auburn at the church up there. Um, Tim had the honor of being the speaker for Friday night for the senior class, and I had the honor of being the speaker for Sabbath morning. So um, Grace Point had an influence and an impact on the lives of the students, and we were happy to be a part of it. I tell you, if you missed Friday night, Pastor, Pastor Tim had all the kids up in front praying for them with their parents. It was, it was a very moving, moving moment. Pastor Tim, I have one question after the uh, after the sermon from a couple weeks ago or last week. The question is: Did you ever catch any fish that someone else didn't cast for you? The answer is yes, I did. Okay, okay, okay. So eventually you got this figured out, and you didn't have to have someone casting your pole. I was feeling bad for you. Uh, it, was, it was awful, but I probably landed close to 18 fish. Whoa. So so Tim's been having a fish fry at his house this last week or not He catches them and then he puts them back Those of you who are Asian like my wife I know that that just bothered you somewhere in your soul My wife is a vegetarian except for swimming vegetables And if you're worried about that, the Seventh-day Adventist Health Study demonstrated that pescatarians are actually the healthiest of those among us. Uh, Brenda and I were in Seattle last week. Um, she had planned an opportunity for us to go and, uh, and be away for, for my birthday. My birthday was the week before, and on that, that day I had the, the thing for the school and a wedding, and so it didn't work out that it was time for a birthday. But um, we had a great time together. Seattle was beautiful. Uh, it, uh, the rain that was pr- forecast did not come at least not where we were and so we had beautiful days there was a little sprinkle on Friday when we finished our outdoor activity and um, it was just it was God's blessing again just reminding us that even in the small details of life he is present and so we we had a great time we finished our weekend with zip lining through the trees on an island near Seattle and that was pretty cool I had I had done a little bit of it. the zip lines I had ridden before were not as awesome as these they were zip lines um, that we made for kids um, when we were... W- Ziplining wasn't really a known thing, and we used to do zip lining for the kids at camp meeting. And now that I've seen what they do, what we did was pretty dangerous. <laughs> our kids didn't get helmets. There weren't people catching them. The end of one year, we looked at our equipment. It was almost worn through. It was probably not a good idea. It was a good idea we stopped, probably. I, it, it, if those of you who are in... Uh, uh, are in lost control, probably just had a little twitch there of your own. But yeah, the, the, uh, the time for us, the experience was really good. The rest was good. We did miss you all. It's good to be home. Um, returning to church after we've been gone for a little while and returning to be a part of worship is truly a, a homecoming feeling for both of us um, because you are more than just the church, you are our family in in so many ways we have watched the children grow up um we have seen some of you uh join god's family and grow in god's grace and uh develop relationships with him and and the the body and it's just been awesome to be a part of life with you for the last couple of decades and so it's it, it when we're away we really do feel it so it's good to be home Um, Pastor Tim uh, last week opened up Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 has a few items in it and um, we're not going to get very far today uh, through through the chapter. I'm really just wanting to focus on one line. After the temptation of Jesus, the story goes that Jesus was ministered to by angels and restored. He apparently returns from the wilderness of Judah. And as he returns from the wilderness back into the community, news is passed on to Jesus about John the Baptist. That John the Baptist has been arrested. Now before you you just jump past that idea, I want you to recognize what happened there. Satan took a full frontal attack. He took a full swipe at Jesus, trying to knock him off by his own, straight on, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, super being to super being. And when that failed, he attacked his family, his team, his one vocal witness. Do you realize that? He attacked someone else connected with Christ. The tactics really haven't changed much, have they? When you are able to stand because you're leaning on Jesus and resist that, that, that pressure that he puts on in your life, he'll just move on and try to get to you in another direction. Attacking some member of your family, some vocal supporter of yours, some team member, somebody who's on your side. Jesus had only one team member at this point vocally supporting him, other than perhaps his mom. And that's John the Baptist, who had testified that this was in fact God. And when Jesus withstands his wiles face to face, he goes after John. When John is arrested, Jesus leaves for Galilee. Matthew stops there to pause to help people understand that by Jesus going to Capernaum, He fulfills a prophecy of Isaiah... And so if you're a Jewish person trying to decide whether you're going to follow this Jesus, whether you're going to be a disciple or not, you pick up a little more information. That's what what Matthew is doing. He's feeding you reasons to believe all through the text. And so he says, look, Isaiah prophesied that he would do this. He prophesied that the Messiah would go off to this northern country, this place of darkness, and they would see a great light dawning. And then the Bible simply describes what jesus does next if you're reading the message or one of the more paraphrase related bibles it says in jesus picked up where john left off because you remember the message of john repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand jesus picks up where john left off with this phrase repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Pastor Tim told you that there are a couple of words for repent, but in this case, the word simply means to turn, to change your direction. It's the primary use of the word in the New Testament, and in this case, it's that primary use. It means to repent, means to change your direction. New information, change of direction. It's like when you're listening to your, that little voice in your car. Um, I, 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 the little voice in my car <coughs> has a British accent because everybody knows that things are more authoritative with a British accent. And so you're listening to that little voice in your car and the car, and it says, turn left. You simply have gotten new information and therefore you turn left up to that point. You were going along through down the street and it said, you know, in two miles, turn left in a half mile, turn left. And then it says, turn left. That's what mine should say. Maybe 10 seconds sooner than it usually does. New information, change your direction. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, what's the next word? Is, present tense, it's here, it's arrived. Repent, change your direction. Here's the new information to change your direction on. Here's the, here's the information that'll, that'll get you going in a different way. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. It's at hand. It's, it, it is present. And then the next phrase, at hand, not in your hands, not in your life, not in your heart, but it's accessible. Repent, change your direction, because right now, if you'll change that direction, the kingdom of heaven is accessible. You get the picture? Change your direction, because right at this moment, right now, because Jesus is present, there's greater accessibility to the kingdom of heaven in this moment repent for the kingdom of heaven is now at hand It's present is 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 accessible to you in a way that it wasn't before repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand that's where i'd like to spend some time and i'd like to ask you if you'd join me for a word of prayer as we get rolling in that you know you thought i was already rolling; i've just barely scratched the surface so far let's pray father i ask that you would kindly bless us with your leadership with your voice with your holy spirit in this next segment of what we do here in worship this morning. May your word be powerful and enlightening and moving to us. May we find today some element that speaks directly to our heart, to our situation, to our needs. In Jesus' name, amen. So what just happened when Jesus made this statement? He arrives there in Galilee. He makes this, 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 this new, new arrival. He goes to Nazareth first. It looks like he goes to Nazareth and picks up his suitcase. Because the Bible just says he goes to Nazareth and then he moves to Capernaum. So it's like he goes to Nazareth, he picks up his stuff and he moves to Capernaum. Now we know where, do you know where he lived at Capernaum? Peter's house. The only place we ever see Peter, or Jesus living in Capernaum, it doesn't like, it doesn't, it isn't like he has an apartment. He moves from Nazareth to Capernaum, and where he lives apparently in Peter's house. Um, there's, look it up. It really appears that the house is still there. They built a church over there that looks like a spaceship, but the house is, is still there. There's a glass floor. The reason this looks like a spaceship is there's a glass floor in it so you can look into Peter's old house. It's very cool. Looks like the house is still there where Jesus lived in Capernaum. Jesus leaves Nazareth and He goes to Capernaum. He moves to this place and that's when, that's when the statement is being made because Capernaum is on this, this, this transition road, this transition road from Israel into the rest of the world, from the rest of the world into Israel. This place where once you go beyond Capernaum, beyond the Sea of Galilee, you wander out of Israel and you wander out into the rest of the world and access for the rest of the world goes in all directions at that point. You can go up up North directly into the mountains above and into what today is modern day Iraq and Turkey. You can go north and then to the west, and you can find yourself going beyond Turkey and on into Corinth and Greece and the, into, the, into the capitals of the, of the empire. You can go to the east, and you can wander off into Babylon and Persia, and go as far as India and even the beginnings of the Silk Road all the way into China. From that point, the road splits out, and you can go all over the place. It's this crossroads where people are coming in and going out. That's why he's saying this is the place where the light shines anew this is that place where when the when the when the presence of Jesus arrives there the people who lived in darkness saw the light come on what happened that day when what happens when Jesus begins to make this announcement is he's stating the beginning of something different up to this point it's been one way after this point it's going to be a different way what exactly was going on? So I want to back up the bus. Go back and look at what the state of man is. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man. Who, what's the one man through whom sin arrived? Adam. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Do you remember the story at the beginning? Adam and Eve were there in this beautiful place made specifically for them. Spectacular place. So cool that when the Bible describes it, it says, The future that God has for you, your eye has not seen, your ear has not heard, neither has even entered into your eye. You can't even imagine this place. That's how cool the place they lived in was and the place you live in in the future will be. They go to that place, they arrive in that place, they are told by God, only. there's only one restriction for you guys, only one thing we have to worry about. I put a tree in this garden, that tree is there for you to understand that you need to trust me. And here's what I need you to trust me on. That particular tree is not something I want you to eat from. In the day that you decide to disobey, in the day that you doubt what I've told you, if you go ahead and do what I've asked you not to do, death will reign. devil shows up in the tree in the form of a snake. The serpent begins to speak, begins to talk to the woman. Have you ever had the devil talk to you? Ever had that whisper in your ear to do something you know is wrong? There's no question who's talking at that point. When that, when that voice, that, that whispering, or that temptation begins to draw you into what you know you shouldn't be doing. What you already know God doesn't want you to do. Uh, I, I, love, <clears throat> I love Mark Twain's statement about this, about the scriptures. Mark, Mark Twain's brother was a pastor, back, in fact, in Carson City, Nevada. You, his church is still there. You can go up and tour the Mark Twain Trail, which is interesting because Mark Twain was only there for a short while. His brother actually lived there. But Mark Twain said, I'm not afraid of the things I don't understand in the Bible. What scares me are the things I do understand. There are things that are absolutely clear to us, right? They're not in the grays. They're in the blacks and the whites. And when, we, when the devil whispers in your ear something you already know is in the black or the white, and you go, ah, uh, you ought to know who's talking to you. He used to hang around in the garden in a tree, which was apparently where he was quarantined to. And he called out to Adam and Eve, and he says, Hey guys, you know what Eve, i got a story for you that is different from the story of God. God told you that the day you eat to this tree, you're actually going to die. He said, you're not going to die, come on. God knows that when you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Come on baby, have a bite. takes him up on it. And what enters into the heart of man at that moment is doubt about the character of who God is. This isn't about fruit. This is about faith. This was the one place they had to exercise their faith against temptation. And I don't know how many times they'd wandered by or how many times they'd seen the snake in the tree or how many times they'd the, it had been in the distance of their vision. But on this day at this time, they choose to trust one other than God. Now stop for a sec. We all do that. We all do it. We do it week in and week out. Sometimes day in and day out. We choose to trust someone other than God. And very often the someone we are trusting other than God... Is us. We trust our opinion. You know, one of the things that's killing me that people say today, it's just killing me. Every time I hear it, I want to just do unpastoral things. <laughs> is the phrase, that's your truth. Oh, I, just, I just want to grab the person who utters the phrase by their ears pull them up really close and scream at them. It is not my truth or your truth. It is the truth and it is outside and objective to all of our opinions. It is commonplace for us today to lean on our own understanding. By the way, there's a Particularly good passage in the Bible that says, lean not on your own understanding. It is particularly common for us today to lean on our own wisdom, our own knowledge, our own understanding. We work with what we know and we look at the face of God and say, you know, you know, you're out there and I'm here and I'm going with my opinion. What happened in the garden was that we were handed a change in our nature that caused us to lean more on ourselves and on our own understanding and to distrust the God of the universe. And the whole of Scripture from then to now has been God trying to get us back to leaning on Him and Him alone. Sin entered the world. Death because of sin. Because you and I and they chose to distrust the one who was holding our life in his hand and maintaining our every breath. Life was not taken from Adam and Eve. It was given away by them. We, ha- we, we sometimes think that what happened there was a day of retribution it wasn't a day of retribution God had simply said in the day that this changes there will be a change and that change will be death will reign and in spite of that information in spite of that knowledge this wasn't the day of God saying ha ha you ate from the tree punishment no this was a day when God said oh man they ate of the tree You know what that means? That means from now on and until we rid this place of the mess that they've just created, death is going to reign. It's as true as the law of gravity that sin cannot exist in the presence of God and therefore death reigns. God created life and the life he created was to be eternal. So says, let that sink into your heart. Because down deep in your heart, you know that death is an interloper in our world. Every time you go to a funeral, every time someone you love dies, every time you hear about somebody being killed by some, by, by some process or some means, it touches you in a way that things shouldn't touch you because everything dies. This should be as normal as the sun coming up in the morning. Because everything dies. But in your heart is a little taste of eternity that says this thing doesn't fit, doesn't belong. Because in your heart is a little bit of the nature of what God placed in you when he created our our ancestors in the garden. We were meant to live eternally. God warned them against rebellion because it would lead to death. He didn't warn them against rebellion because he wanted them to do what he told them. He warned them because of the results of it. They chose to doubt God. They chose to doubt God. I want to lay the foundation to get the pictures right here because if you get these pictures wrong, you start to blame God for a whole bunch of things he's not to be blamed for. His plan was that we have eternal life, Our forefathers chose rebellion after being warned about its consequences and chose, therefore, to give away their eternal life. And by our heritage, ours. And so started an experiment in the devil's planning where death reigns. And so started an experiment where the one who would rebel against God was the leader of this little planet, this petri dish we've all grown up in. And death became our normal end. Death became our normal end. In the last couple hundred years, we've fully embraced this idea. In the last couple of hundred years, we fully embraced this idea. Our friendly neighborhood science book now argues that death begets life. Right? Isn't what that, that what the theory of evolution is based on? Good stuff survives. Bad stuff dies. We get better. So we have this slow, organic... Organic is an interesting word because it kind of implies that we all become dirt again, organic process where death begets improvement, begets improvement, begets improvement, and eventually begets utopia. That we will get better and better and better if we could just keep dying fast enough. How's that been working for us, to quote Dr. Phil? Are things getting better as far as you can tell? No. Does the evidence seem to indicate that these guys are right? There's evidence for what they say. Lots of stuff has died. Tons of stuff has died. Not sure we can say that things are getting better flies right in the face, we won't get into creation, flies right in the face of one of the laws of physics called entropy, which you can look up later if you don't already know. But in our culture, in our society, in our times, we have gotten so wise. We've we've come to know good and evil so well that we've embraced death as the answer instead of the problem. Crazy, isn't it? We live in a world where everything is upside down. We hate God and embrace death. Crazy. Who would have ever believed it could happen? So why did Jesus then come? We're still on the answer to the question, what happened that day? When Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, what happened that day? Jesus said, I have come that you might have. Life. You know why? Because you didn't have life. I've come that you might have life. Now, ultimately, this is talking about eternal life. This is talking about transformational moment when Jesus comes and makes access to eternal life, ours again. Up until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we had images, we had pro- we had projections, we had ideas that this could happen. But after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, we had Access to it. The kingdom of God is presently accessible. I have come that you might have life, and even here, life more abundant. You see, I think Christianity and I think the scriptures reveal that he is trying to give us a better life even though we live on the freeway. We live on the freeway and things get run over all the time. Our our friends and neighbors and ideas and loved ones, our our dogs and cats and people we know, become grease spots on the freeways of the world. And God is saying, I know you live on the freeway, but let me help you get this figured out. Stand in the median. Get to the edges. Wait till the traffic slows down. There are some rules for living on the freeway. That's what Scripture's trying to do. We, we find ourselves in rebellion against the things that God placed in the text to give us abundance. And we wonder why we don't have abundance. It's crazy. Upside down. Jesus said, I've come. I came so that you might have life because you don't have it. The kingdom of heaven is presently at hand. And at the resurrection, just a short while away, it will become absolutely yours, accessible to you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've been going along and you've gotten some new information and you decided to change your direction. Because now it's accessible. You see, we, we, we pass by stuff like this, like it's unimportant. We blow right through this passage. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we go on to, hey, and then he grabbed a bunch of disciples off the street. It was amazing. Well, yeah, it was, but don't go too quickly through this. Because what Jesus just laid out was the, sort of the, the founding principle, the, the first sentence of the Magna Carta of this new world. This changes everything. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a new sheriff in town and things are about to change for us in ways you can't even imagine. I've come that you might have life. Death has been reigning and ruling and eternity has been lost to you, but I've come that you might have life. That it may be accessible to you no matter your background, no matter your troubles, no matter how dumb you've been, no matter how bright you think you are. It's accessible. It's possible for you to get back the eternity that your forefathers lost the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand it's right there it's within your reach it's an arm's length away it's, just, it's coming, it's close it's going to be there for you eternity is back as an option on the plate take a second turn to your neighbor and say eternity is back because you guys are looking at me like I didn't tell you anything I know this is a white congregation, and to smile and respond is not normal. But eternity is option that wasn't an option before. Eternity's back on the plate. It's back on the menu. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Death, reigns but it's not going to rain forever. Because the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is at hand. It's close by. It's accessible again. Rome... Was the visible kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is his hand. The Jews looked around and said, The only kingdom we see is the kingdom of the Romans. Rome was the visible kingdom. Let me ask you a question What kingdom do you live in? Trumpdom? (laughs) The Western Hemisphere? We physically live in the kingdoms of this world. We deal with the issues of the place where we live. Get this straight. Figure this out right now. Do not expect the outcomes of heaven in the kingdoms of the world without the interference of God. Do not expect the outcomes of heaven in the kingdoms of the world without the interference of God. We call it a miracle. What it is is God interfering with the normal practices of the earth. It happens sometimes. We don't know why it happens to some and not others, right? We'd like it to happen every time. We'd like for our prayers to be as automatic as a vending machine. Brenda and I were up in, uh, up in this little tiny town in the middle of nowhere, and we were going along, and we were looking for something to drink, and there was a vending machine down in the, in the sort of uh, uh, the breezeway in this hotel. And so we just went up to the hotel like we belong there and got something out of the, out of the vending machine. You put in the right money, and the right thing comes out. We would like our, our interactions with God to be like that. But we live in the kingdom of this world where death still reigns, but eternity is accessible because of Jesus. Jesus built a a bridge between our, our, our world where death reigns and eternity is reachable. He built the bridge that allowed us to get from where death reigns to where eternal life is possible. He made it accessible by his personal death. And resurrection. These are the foundation principles of Christianity, but they're summed up in that silly little, almost passable phrase, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Rome was the visible kingdom, and if you don't understand that you live in a place where, where ugliness is normal, you will blame God for things that are not his responsibility. I see it all the time. People's lives go sideways, and they don't blame their own decisions, which very often are the reason for their lives going sideways. Can I just put that out there before you walk through my door in my office? That sometimes I, I, I try to be really pastoral and not say this, but sometimes I'm thinking it when you walk through the door. You walk in and you say, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I don't understand why my life's such a mess. And I want to replay the tape of what you just told me. Very often the reason our lives go sideways is our own decisions, and very often it's the decision of someone else. And ultimately it's the result of the place where we live. We live in the armpit of the universe. The angels of God come here to work, not to go on vacation. We're the only ones who think it's possible to vacation here. And if it weren't for the mercies of God, we would all be dead. His mercies are new every morning, therefore we are not consumed. Consumed. If they were not new every morning, we would therefore be consumed. Rome was the visible kingdom. We live in a place like that where bad stuff happens. Did Israel need to repent from Rome? Did Jesus, was Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Repent from Rome. Did they, did they embrace and love Rome? No, not, not, not by and large. By and large, Israel hated being under Rome's authority. They didn't need to change directions. They had already changed that direction. They were trying to go in their own direction the whole time. So they weren't repenting from the Roman present visible kingdom. They didn't like that kingdom. They needed to repent from a kingdom they are of their own misunderstanding of who God was. So you know where you live. What kingdom does your head belong to? Have you accepted things about God that are not true? Do you believe things that are corrupting your understanding of who God is? It's not just where your physical body is, but it's where your heart and your mind are. Have you accepted rules and applications of rules and beliefs about how you live that aren't godly, that aren't biblical? Are you in rebellion against God in some area of your life? The answer to that question, by the way, is yes. You get to pick the area or areas. We live in a place where death reigns. We've accepted some things about it that we need to repent of. We need to change our ideas about some of the things we think. Jesus has come as a revolutionary for life. I have come that you might have life. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have what? The keys. I have the keys. Look what he has the keys to. I have the keys to Hades and death. Now I need to answer this business about Hades. Because we've got a messed up understanding of what that is too. Hades is a Greek word that means not seen it's two Greek words slammed together the little abbreviation a, which means not Iden, which means seen not seen you throw a, a little mark above that first syllable when you get an H that's how you got the Hades from there it simply means the world of the unseen in fact in the first century they would often write this word on, on gravestones They weren't condemning the person in the grave to hell. They weren't certainly condemning them to some place of eternal burning. They were saying, this is the grave of Frank. Frank's Hades. Jesus said, I have the keys of the grave and death. Some of your Bibles actually translate it that way. I have the keys to the grave and to death. You know what reigned in our earth? Death. You know what Jesus came to give us? Life. You know what He did? He took back the keys. I have the keys to the grave and to death. I can get you out. You don't have to accept this as your normal anymore. Because I got the keys. When I was a kid, before Glenn and I had car keys of our own, I would walk from my house to Glenn's house. And after we both got our license, there was a a moment when we knew, when I knew that we weren't walking to school. It's when Glenn came out of the front door of his house with the keys held up. To his mom's 1967 blue Fairlane station wagon. (laughs) The ride of the hour. But he had the keys and it meant we weren't walking. Jesus says, I have the keys. The grave doesn't have to rain. Death doesn't have to rain. I died and I was resurrected and I stole the keys. I have the keys. Repent, for a kingdom of life is about to take the place of a kingdom of death. Death no longer needs to be your normal. It no longer needs to reign. I have made eternity accessible. The thief does not come. This is the other half of John 10, verse 10. The thief does not come. This is the devil, except to steal and to kill and destroy but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life to steal the keys. Are you following what happened that day? He said, repent, change your direction because I've got some new information for you guys. Death doesn't have to rain. I'm about to steal the keys. It's going to be a couple years. Some stuff's going to happen between now and then. But I am about to take the keys to the kingdom of earth and make it the kingdom of our God. I've got to take the keys. I don't know, or anyway, this thing may not make it all the way through. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 54 to 57. So when this corruptible, you and me has put on incorruption, you get to not be corrupted anymore. Your heart, clean, transformed, no longer the mess that it finds itself in, no longer in contempt of God, no, no longer in rebellion against God's desires. You and I, corruptible, get to put on incorruption. And this mortal has put on immortality. We don't currently have that. By the way, absolute demonstration that there cannot be an immortal hell. There cannot be an eternal hell because we burn up. This mortal puts on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus has the keys. You see, we read these things, we just blow by them like nothing happened. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Death, gone. Eternal life. Back in your grasp. You can now choose that. What a God. The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm gonna deal with the sin problem, you guys. I'm taking back the keys. They're mine. And death doesn't have to reign on this planet where you live anymore. For it is by one man's offense death reigned and through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Who we'll reign in life through Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Hmm. So I end with this. What kingdom do we live in? Our bodies are present in a kingdom where death reigns. If we don't get this piece right, we will blame God for things that are not his fault. They're the fault of our choices, the fault of other people's choices, and the fault of the neighborhood we live in. Death doesn't reign because God is angry with you. Death doesn't rain because God is mean. The mess that is created of our world is created because of the choice of, that our ancestors made and that we inherited and we continue to make, lest we blame it all on Adam and Eve, we need to look, take a long, hard look at ourselves because they're not the only ones making choices of rebellion against God and choosing sin over righteousness. We live in a kingdom where death reigns. But what kingdom are we living for? Where does our heart belong? Are we so caught up in the place where we live that no one could tell the difference between us and a person who doesn't serve God at all? When we're sitting at a negotiating table talking to somebody about some contract we're about to sign, those people feel differently about us than the rest of the people they deal with. When we conduct our business in our grocery store or in our in a, in a neighborhood's facility, do the people who look across the table at us and deal with us do they do they see a difference in us? What kingdom do we live for? We're stuck in this one until Jesus comes. It's accessible for eternal life and transformation. What do we live for? What does our wallet say about what we live for? What does our checkbook say about what we live for? What does our calendar say about what what we live for? What does the testimony of our lives say about where we live, what we live for? And who is our king? Who's the king of my life? Is it me? Or is it Jesus? And what would have to change to get me off the throne and him on it? Let's pray.